the cross where my Savior died. Down where for cleansing from sin I cried. There to my heart was the blood of life. Glory to his name. I am so wondrously saved from sin. Jesus so sweetly abides within. There at the cross where he took me in. Glory to his name. Glory to In the midst of 
Good morning. I'd like to welcome you to Westgate this morning, and we are so glad that you are here worshiping with us this morning. And if you're a visitor, um, we are also glad that you're here and invite you to fill out a communication card in the pew rack in front of you um, and turn that in. That way, just we can just introduce ourselves to you and, and you can get to know us and we can answer any questions that you may have. Um, so like that video we, you saw, we had a great time at Fall Festival this year. Uh, the rain was a little tough at the first, but um, all of our volunteers did amazing, and all of our uh, volunteers that did trunks uh, 
really powered through the whole night, and they did an awesome job, and, and we want to thank you guys. And um, if you weren't aware, we had a little trunk decorating contest going on, and um, so I'm here to announce that the trunk that won this year is our Noah's Ark by the Underdown and Ricky Roy class. <laughs> they did an awesome job, and they had several several stuffed animals donated to the cause that got very wet. So <laughs> we want to thank them for that. And I do have a little prize for y'all if y'all will come see me in the foyer after the service. Um, so several other announcements this morning. We have our prison ministry in the foyer this morning that you can stop by and sign a card and get some prayer requests um, from them and pray for them, pray for those needs. And then we also have 13 shoe boxes left for Operation Christmas Child. And if you haven't gotten one yet, you still have plenty of time. Those are due back November 20th. So if you haven't gotten one, make sure you pick one up. And we'd like to see those 13 shoe boxes gone today. So if you haven't gotten one yet, go ahead and pick one up on your way out this morning. Um, next Sunday from 9 to 12, Life Share Blood Center will be in the gym. So if you'd like to donate blood, they will be here. And then I have several announcements for our Women of Westgate ministry. We have our Wow in the Woodlands coming up on Thursday, November 10th. That is just a shopping day that our ladies can get together. And there's a sign-up sheet in the foyer if you'd like to sign up for that. If you don't want to drive to the Woodlands, that's fine. We have plenty of people that are willing to drive. So go ahead and sign up in there, and we'll meet here um, at 8.15, I believe it was, and uh, they'll go from there. So I encourage you to sign up. It's just going to be a fun time that our ladies can get together. Um, also, we have our WOW Christmas event that we want you to save the date for. It's December 1st. It's a Thursday. Uh, it's $10 per person, and um, if you'd like to so go ahead and sign up today, that uh, sign-up is also in the foyer as well. It's going to be a great time for our ladies to get together for Christmas. And then we have our cookbook that we are doing. The Westgate uh, Women, of Ministry, Women of Westgate Ministry is sponsoring it, but... Anybody can submit a recipe to our cookbook. So if you would like to submit a recipe, those sheets are in the foyer on the wow table kind of over here. You can pick those up and turn in your recipes, and we will uh, put that together. It's going to be a really, really special thing for our church to have. Then the last thing is we have our 2023 budget pre presentation next Sunday at 5 p.m. And if you haven't gotten one yet, our budget packets are available in the atrium. Just please stand with me as we read from God's word. This is Romans 5, 1 through 8. It says, Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions, because we know that the affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces it produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for just one person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the sacrifice you made for us. While we were still sinners, 
You paid the price for us. Before we even knew we needed it, you made a way. Thank you for what you've done. May we be, have that thought of thankfulness. May that be on our lips each and every day for how you've provided for us. May Jesus be glorified here in this place this morning. We ask it in the name of Jesus. You may be seated as we continue to worship now. Hey. 
Father, you have the victory. You have overcome sin and death. You're victorious. And our victory is in you and you alone. May Jesus be magnified here in this place today. And now as your word is open and preached, we listen to what you have to say to us. We listen to what you're calling us to do. And may we respond in complete obedience. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Hey, thank you all for leading us in worship. Today is a unique day. It's called Pews to the Poles. How many of you knew that? Uh, well, today is Pews to the Poles Day, if you didn't know that. <laughs> but anyway, today, <clears throat> a unique opportunity uh, is from noon to 6. You can vote, because I know voting can be challenging. Uh, in fact, the first time Michelle and I went over to the polls the other day, uh, they had already closed, and it was just a little bit after 5. And uh, they closed early, I guess because of lack of volunteers. So we had to go back a second day to, to cast our ballot. But I want you to all uh, very seriously, uh, take very seriously your opportunity to vote. It sounds like, why does that come from the church? Because we have an opportunity as Christians to be salt and light, and God expects us to be salt and light and to not to take that uh, lightly. And as you vote, I would ask, as your pastor, that you would seek to find the candidate that you believe has the most godly wisdom. And a good litmus test for that, and this is going to sound politically angled, but it is not. It's just the reality of where we stand. A good litmus test is to see how closely the candidates that you're voting for line up on three fundamental issues of marriage, pregnancy, and gender, and how what they believe lines up with God's creation order described in Scripture. Doesn't that make sense? If we as Christians are voting, and we have not made one 
political party, our idol or God, but we have said, I am going to focus on the candidate that displays the closest alignment to God's creation order as defined by Scripture. Now, some have said uh, that, you know, that doesn't really matter. What matters is great leadership. Well, let me ask you, if you were hiring a bank president and you found a candidate who had remarkable leadership skills, was a marketing genius, was a genuinely caring person with enormous relational influence, had unbelievable grasp of finance and economics, but opposed audits and disagreed with the principle of full disclosure, would you hire that person as a bank president? Had a lot of great credentials, could have been very charismatic. And I think sometimes we, we forget that when we go to the polls is someone is missing something so fundamental even though they have all these other great characteristics. So anyway, vote. Someone is going to be in charge after this election. Someone is, and you have the opportunity to be a part of that. And I think we want to influence some of the decisions because during the pandemic, our United States federal government paid out $1.4 billion in stimulus checks to dead people. Yeah, that's right. Our government, with wisdom and oversight, paid $1.4 billion to dead people. And when you think about how big that number is, if you were to count to a billion, and you were counting continuously 24 hours a day, one number per second, which you can't because the numbers get so big when you get into the higher numbers, it would take you 32 years nonstop just to count to a billion. If you did 12 hours a day and you took a break and did something else during the other 12 hours, then it'd take you 64 years to count. So as you see, decisions like that are going to be made by somebody. And if we fail to vote, it can be very costly, not just financially. And aren't you glad that you don't live in New Mexico? New Mexico has a law that says idiots cannot vote. They do not, do not define what an idiot is, but lots of people would try to define that in our culture today. So anyway, pews to the polls from noon to six, and there is somebody in this room that you could vote for, but it would be politically wrong for me to point that person out, so I'll just let it go. <laughs> Over in this general direction. Um, well, here we are in the family resemblance, talking about the book of James. We're learning critical lessons for our lives, and uh, Today we get to the, the issue of discontentment. I remember when our history professor in seminary told us this story, it was absolutely unbelievable, but in the late 1800s, there was a small church in Mayfield County, Kentucky, that had two deacons that could not get along. They always opposed each other on every issue that came their way. One particular Sunday, one of the deacons took a peg and drove it into the back of the church wall so that the pastor could hang his hat on the peg. The other deacon was outraged, true story, the other deacon was outraged that he was not consulted about the peg being placed at the back of the church for the pastor's hat. The church took sides and eventually split, and the new church that formed named themselves the Anti-Peg Baptist Church. <laughs> now that's a true story. It's amazing what can happen among Christians in conflict. 
a dad was running outside in his backyard because he heard his kids screaming and yelling at each other, and he was certain that there was some major conflict occurring in his backyard. When he got out there and began to reprimand the kids for yelling, they said, Dad, back off, don't worry. We're just playing church. <laughs> A lot of people have that perspective of church. And this morning, as James is dealing with critical issues, he talks about the danger of ungodly discontentment. If you have a pew Bible, if you don't have your Bible, it's on page 1883. We're going to look at James 4, verses 1 through 10. I'm going to read it, and then we'll go back, and we'll kind of break it down a little bit as we go. It says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Hey, how about we pray together? God, we thank you for your word that reminds us of truth that we need to hear. Lord, we know that your word from cover to cover is filled with truth that guides us and helps us in relationship with you and relationship with one another to live in creation order the way that you have ordained. I pray that this morning you would help us as we unpack these verses to better understand how it applies to our individual lives and collectively to the life of our church and the ministry that you have, you have given us to steward wisely. So please guide us now, we ask in your name. Amen. We see, first of all, that the danger of godly discontentment. James was talking about an obvious problem. Again, he, he's not just writing because he has nothing to do. He is trying to address issues among Christians then, and it applies to Christians even today. He's not writing to a specific church. We learned that from the beginning. Persecution took place in uh, the early church in Jerusalem. They were scattered, and because of that, James, as a pastor of the Jerusalem church, was then trying to connect with Christians who had scattered in various places. So this wasn't to a specific church, unlike churches like Philippi or Galatia or Ephesians, Corinth, uh, letters that were written later in Scripture, Laodicea, Ephesus, Thessalonica, various churches. It's interesting how, how people will say, I don't really like the modern church. I want us to go back and be more like the New Testament church. And that's when we do have to ask hard questions, just like we see today. Which church do you want to be like? Do you want to be like the church at Philippi? Where you had two ladies with really weird names, Yodia and Syntyche, who couldn't get along. Do you want a church like that where there's conflict? Do you want a church like Corinth where they fight before they have the Lord's Supper? Do you want a church like Laodicea in which they grow cold? Or Ephesus that, that loses its first love? Or do you want a church like Thessalonica where they have theological confusion and they're lazy? Or do, you, or do you want somebody like the church in Galatia which is confused about salvation? 
See, when he is writing, he is trying to correct Christians because Christians make up the church. And this issue that he's addressing today is, like wisdom, there are two kinds of discontentment. This is going to sound a little bit weird, so you really need to track with me. Typically, we talk about contentment and discontentment. But I want us to see that there are two kinds of discontentment. There is godly discontentment, and there is ungodly discontentment. Ungodly discontentment is focused on personal comfort. We're discontented about the situations in our lives. Godly discontentment is focused on thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's interesting that Paul said he had learned to be content in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. But what do you recognize about Paul's life? He was restless. He was discontented. And he would remain discontented the balance of his life until the gospel of Jesus Christ reached every single person. And that's why when he was writing to the church, a church in Rome, he would say, I would gladly give up my place in the kingdom of God if my fellow brothers could find their salvation in Christ. We can be discontented with our circumstances, or we can be discontent with the fact that so many have not yet turned to God. Isn't it interesting how we can be so discontent with our life, but so content with the progress of gospel initiatives like evangelism and ministry and missions and provisions for people in need and worship. This really resonated with me the other night. I was laying in bed and I was just thinking about the things in my life that I was discontent about. And then I thought, why do I not have that level of discontentment about the kingdom of God? Why don't I have the same uneasiness about those I know who don't yet know Christ? Why don't I have a greater discontentment about the gospel being disseminated to the ends of the earth? People not being provided for the way that they need to. See, I grew up next to a military base. And one of the common phrases used there, because so many people work for the government on the military base, was it's good enough for government work. And I'm not sure if we aren't careful, we will fall prey to the idea that it's good enough for God's work. And so we have this discontentment about our own life, but we don't have a discontentment about the advancement of the kingdom of God. So as we talked about last week, like ungodly wisdom, ungodly discontentment is radically evil. It's driven by the agenda of the evil one who comes to steal, kill, and to destroy. And so wherever he sees ungodly discontentment and ungodly discontentment to be focusing on our own deficits in our own life, then he endorses that and celebrates that because it's driven by selfish ambition and worldly perspective. And that's what James is writing about. Interesting thought. The word contentment, that word content that, that talks about Paul says, I've learned to be content, that word means to be independent of external circumstances. Just think about that for a minute. To be independent of external circumstances. 
means that I'm not depending on anything or anybody to make me happy, joyful, fulfilled, satisfied, or content. And that's what James is writing about because here are some Christians that are suffering some high levels of discontentment. So he starts off with a question. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. He starts off, with, actually starts off with two questions, and again, we're reminded how oftentimes Jesus did that. And he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? You can just picture him throwing that question out. It's a rhetorical question, but you, you anticipate the congregation, the people that are listening to what he has to say, all those different Christians are saying, well, yeah, I can tell you exactly what the cause is. She won't do what I think she should. He's a horrible boss. I don't like the way they manage the church. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? It's almost like a pause. He throws it out there, and everybody has an answer, and then he comes back and says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Basically, is it because you're a toddler and you're not getting what you want? And we see here what James is saying is that ungodly discontentment, which we all have, Game one of the World Series, come on. I mean, you're up by five runs and you lose. So now you have to go to Philadelphia where you're not going to get a whole lot of brotherly love <laughs> and play there. That, that kind of thing, you know? But it goes deeper than that, doesn't it? Kids won't behave the way that we want. Boss doesn't pay me enough. Don't like the way the neighbors do their yard. It goes on and on and on. And it causes collateral damage when we don't get what we want. Collateral damage was a term that was uh, instituted back in the early 1960s to explain unintended but unavoidable death, injury, or structural damage from a military operation. Collateral damage. This is the target that must be taken out, but innocent people and non-intended targets will be hit to accomplish the goal. And ungodly discontentment has collateral damage in our lives, just like ungodly wisdom and godly wisdom both have a cause and effect that produce a harvest. So does ungodly discontentment. Notice what he says in verse 2. You desire and do not have so you murder. Now that sounds pretty extreme, and commentators are mixed on this. They're thinking it could be metaphorical, thinking back how Jesus was talking in the Sermon on the Mount, that if you hate your brother, you know, it's like you killed him. Or it could be that these are pretty high-octane people, and they've taken somebody out. There's been a hit on someone because they wouldn't give them what they wanted. And there's mixed reviews as to it may literally refer to something, but you don't have to think too far back in Scripture to get a very vivid example, do you? King David, you desire and do not have, so you murder. And that's what happens when we have ungodly discontentment in our life. It will drive us to very poor, unwise decisions. You fight, you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And he's throwing out two different perspectives here. In relationships and dealing with other people, there are many things that could be had if we simply asked. 
If we went down through the proper channels of a relationship and we, we sought to try to work with someone, to, to ask them, but then he carries it a step further to say, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Talking about prayer. Jesus talked about that a lot, which we, we pray with wrong motives. It's interesting how we can pray for so many things related to our own lives. I wish that he could see how well I am doing at my job. Give me a raise. I wish she could understand how hard I'm trying in this relationship. Oftentimes we, we fail to ask God or we ask God for things that are not godly. We just want more stuff to accumulate in our lives and that's what he's talking about here. You want to spend it on your own passions. It's all self-driven. I want a bigger car. I want a nicer house. I want a bigger paycheck. I want them to cooperate. I want them to do what I want them to do. And so as James is talking about this, he's helping them to see how they have drifted in the relationship from God. These are believers that were part of the Pentecost experience, most likely. And they've left Jerusalem after this incredible experience. And now as they live apart from other believers in separate areas, there seems to be a drift taking place. Have you ever had a drift in your life spiritually? Maybe some of us even now are experiencing that. And he's saying, you need to recognize where you are headed. Notice the strong word that is used there in verse 4. You adulterous people. What is he saying there? You have become unfaithful to God. How does he mean that? Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This is not talking about a casual relationship. It is talking about an intimate relationship in which infidelity takes place. See, all through the Old Testament, and, and this, this applies in the voting booth, okay? We read passages of Scripture like that, and we wonder, how does that relate to us in 2021? We see the decimation of the family and culture, and not just in American culture, but all across cultures throughout the world, right? Why is that important? Why is that significant? That's because there's spiritual warfare going against the family, the marital relationship, because the marital relationship is the icon that God has created to be a picture of his relationship with his people. And so through spiritual warfare, Satan says, if I can confuse people about what that relationship looks like, then I confuse them about what that relationship with God looks like. Does that make sense? And that's where James is saying, you need to understand. You understand marriage, right? Then you need to understand you have become an adulterer to God. You are unfaithful to God. You are becoming more friendly with the world. And it's not just like a... You know, it's not like a friend that's on your network. This is to be the best of the best of the best of friends. You become the best of friends with the world. And because of that, you have become an enemy of God. Friends, I don't think any of us want to be an enemy of God. But we see how easily it can creep in. How anger can overtake us. I had to laugh at a story about a guy named Frank Frank was explaining to a friend, he says, I'm old school. Instead of ranting on social media, I just scream at people face to face. <laughs> There's a lot of us that are old school when it comes to ungodly discontentment. 
And as James is saying there, notice the collateral damage. It damages your relationship with other people. It does. You live selfishly, it will da- it'll, selfishness will destroy any marriage. Can we hear an amen? Selfishness will destroy any relationship. So ungodly discontentment destroys relationships. It destroys relationship within us. It creates such enormous turmoil because we are always wanting something else, never satisfied. I was reading a a story about this gal, and I'd never heard of her before, but she is an Indian singer and author, Sankati Pandey. Hope I'm pronouncing her name close. She's written a book called The Voyage to Happiness, and in it she makes a statement. Follow the train of thought. She says, never let the things you want make you forget the things you have. And she ends that sentence with an exclamation point because what she's about to say is equally important. Your success in life is also defined by how contented you are. Never let the things you want make you forget the things you have. That's ungodly discontentment, is we forget what we have in our search for what we do not have. And so it hinders our relationship with others, it hinders our relationship with ourselves, and worst of all, it hinders our relationship with God, which impacts every relationship. So there's collateral damage to ungodly discontentment. So how do we win the war against this? James is using military words. If you're trying to follow the the train of thought of this message, he uses military words. When he starts out talking about this battle inside of you, he's using military warfare as as his motif there. There's a battle going on. It's not just a casual, oh, I wish I was different. This is spiritual warfare. So how do we win the war? James 4, uh, chapter 4, verses 5 through 10. Do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? This is your lucky day to be in church. This is one of the most difficult passages of the entire Bible to translate. There are a variety of different translations that come out. But what seems to be at the very core of what's being said there is, God is a jealous God. And if you, the readers that are receiving this, are followers of Christ, the Spirit of God lives within you. And he wants there to be this connectedness, not this incongruency between your spirit and the Spirit of God that resides within you. All throughout Scripture, if you're reading through the Old Testament and you're getting so tired of all of the things that it says in among the prophets, why is it saying that? Because the people of God were being unfaithful to a God who was jealous. We think jealous is, that's a bad word. No, it means that he loves you so much that he will not give up on you. That's the beauty of that. His spirit does not want to be in rebellion against you, inside of you. But he gives more grace. God's grace always prevails over all things. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You never want to be on the opposite side of the line of God. Kind of happened to Oklahoma State University yesterday, I guess. But you never want to be on the opposite side of the line with God. Because God will always, always be the superior power. And so he says, if you want to win the war, this is crazy. Think about the military motif that he's using. If you want to win the war, you must surrender and resist. Now, how do you win a war by surrendering and resisting? Notice what he says in this passage of Scripture. 
submit yourself. And he's going to give out seven different imperatives. This is like going back to the series on mandates. Seven different imperatives of what we need to do if we want to win the war against ungodly discontentment. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. It is a picture, again, a military uh, verbiage here, terminology. It's of the military, the men in rank, lining up. What does it say? You in rank file? Jump into rank file? It means that you line up the way that you're supposed to based upon your rank. It's to say you submit to God recognizing where you stand, where your rank is, and where his rank is. And he's way up the line. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It's not calling us to take an offensive posture against the devil. It's to say, take a defensive posture. If you will resist him with godly contentment, if you will resist him in the power of Jesus Christ, he will flee from you. Do you remember what happened when Jesus resisted the devil during the times of temptation? Matthew chapter 4? It said that he left him. Why? Because Satan doesn't like to stand in the presence of godliness. And when we are demonstrating godliness, Satan will leave. He can't stand to be there. Just as sinfulness cannot reside in the presence of God, holiness cannot reside in the presence of Satan, and he will flee. So James is saying, resist him, and he will flee from you. For the holidays, Janet was planning uh, to see her parents, so she called and wanted to make sure that they had directions to their new house. Her dad answered, and she said, Dad, do you need directions to where we live now? And he said, nope. I've got your address, the GPS, and GPS override. She said, what in the world is a GPS override? He replied, your mother. (laughs) See, I think sometimes we have the GPS, this scripture that's going to take us right to where God wants us to, but we're using the GPS override override to take us in a different direction. We're resisting where God is leading us. Notice what it says in verse 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Is James not rehearsing the story that he heard his older brother tell about the prodigal son? What an incredible story in which his son did everything that is described here. His his ungodly discontentment caused him to to run away and rebel against everybody that he loved and to squander all that he had. And then it says he finally came to his senses. He came back, and when his father, when he was drawing near to the father, what happened? It's the only time in Scripture you see God in a hurry. Only time. And it says the father ran to the son. That's the picture that James is giving. He's so, he's so positive. I mean, you're thinking, well, you're not. But James is so positive. He's saying in all this negativity, realize that if you take the move towards God, God will come running towards you. Cleanse your hands, he says, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Going back to what he said in the, in the first chapter about wisdom, you're not going to get it if you have this double-minded in which you're trying to live in two different worlds. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. What is he saying? Be sorrowful for your sin. For us to find our way back, we must be sorrowful for our sin. Until sorrow over sin exceeds our interest in it, we have not truly repented. Sometimes we will be remorseful that we got caught or that we slipped up. 
but our sorrow over sin must exceed our interest in it. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Back to military terminology. What does it say in Luke 9, 23? We must die to self if we're going to follow the Lord. It's to fall on the sword of self. We win the war against selfish, ungodly discontentment by surrendering to God and resisting the devil, not giving him the opportunity to pull us further into the rabbit hole of ungodly discontentment. One side will receive your last full measure of devotion. So the question is, which side will it be? We're familiar with that terminology from Abraham Lincoln's address at Gettysburg on November 19th, 1863, 159 years ago. He was dedicating the cemetery, and he used that phrase, the last full measure of devotion. It means to give your life for something. Friends, we will all give our life for something. We may not die at the executioner's bench, but we will all give our life to something. What will we give our life to? That's why Paul would write in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 8, Godliness with contentment is great gain. And what a difference that makes in people's lives. I'll tell you about a lady who was raised in Philadelphia, though I don't really like Philadelphia this week. <laughs> Elizabeth Elliot, you've heard that name. She inspired generations through the way she lived her life and the way that she wrote. She was the first, she was married first to Jim Elliott. One of the missionaries died down in Ecuador. And she talked about the way that she was raised, and she said, I grew up in a very strong Christian home in Philadelphia where both parents were what I call seven-day-a-week kind of Christians. Like that phrase, seven-day-a-week kinds of Christians. And then she talked about a little brass plate that was over their doorbell that defined the way that they lived. This would be a great prayer, honestly, for us to use in our homes. And that little, that little statement on that plate above the doorbell said, Christ is the head of this home, the unseen guest at every meal, the silent listener to every conversation. Friends, that's to find godly contentment. And when you find that, that will literally change the world as we know through her life. Well, Thanksgiving opens up the holiday season. And we know in the holidays, it's fraught with the potential for relational conflict. As we prepare for that, James' words are so apropos, Karen Emmon has wisely and humorously reminded us, may second helpings be your only Thanksgiving regret. What a great prayer. May second helpings be our only Thanksgiving regret because we heed the words of James and we seek to not live in ungodly discontentment, but we find our satisfaction in God. Have you found your satisfaction in God to recognize that he loves you and he's created you to have a relationship with him? Knowing full well that we will never measure up by our own good deeds because we are sinners separated from God, and that's why Jesus came. Thankfully, Jesus Christ can make us right with God. One of the great truths of Scripture 
is Jesus Christ will change us, will change us for all of eternity. And all we have to do is humbly repent of our sins and completely surrender our life to him. If you've never done that, I want to invite you to voice a prayer similar to the one that I'm about to share. And if you're already a Christian and you find yourself maybe struggling with a little ungodly discontentment today, won't you surrender your life completely to Christ and have the resolve to resist the devil no matter the temptation? Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word that speaks into our lives. Thank you for what we have heard today that reminds us of our desperate need to be in right relationship with you because only then will we ever have right relationship with other people. Recognizing that there may be someone in our presence today that has never received you as Lord and Savior, I pray that you would stir their heart, give them a burning desire to pray a prayer similar to this, Lord Jesus. I recognize that I'm a sinner in desperate need of your forgiveness. Please forgive me of all my sins and become the Lord and Savior of my life. I surrender to you all that I am and all that I have, and I will follow hard after you the remaining days of my one and only life. God, as followers of Christ, I pray that we would likewise surrender all that we have and all that we wish we had to you. God, give us a restlessness for the things of your kingdom and a contentedness with the things of our own lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you all. Thanks for listening. We're going to move now into a time of celebrating the Lord's Supper. So if our deacons would come forward now and begin to prepare the elements so that we could receive those. This gives us an opportunity for just a couple of minutes to pray quietly where we are. Just to continue to refine and say, God, would you refine my heart? All that we've talked about stems from that heart that is not naturally where it needs to be. And so we must continue to fight against that. And so guys, if you just go ahead and begin to pass out these elements and we'll have a prayer here in a few minutes. And you know, the communion, as it's known, is something that we do in community. Reminds us that we share the commonality of Jesus Christ in our lives. If you're a Christian, if you've been baptized as a demonstration of your belief in Christ and your determination to follow him, we invite you to join in this. If you're not yet a Christian, you can just let this slip by and just say this is not something that you're yet ready to do, but we pray one day you will. And we pray that as we do this in community, we'll help one another to receive the elements as a reminder that we are in community together.
pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, King of Kings, our Abba, Lord, we worship you and we come to you as sinners. Uh, Lord, may we be uh, like Paul and be discontent uh, in our witness and that we won't rest until we share your gospel with everyone around us, Lord, whether it's verbally through our actions or just through earnestly following you more and more each and every day, God. May we be rich in your word, um, and may we fill our hearts uh, with your words, God, just so we can uh, witness and be the best witness for you each and every day, Lord. Um, God, forgive us when we fail. Lord knows we do every day. But God, may we not rest until uh, we just have a fire in our hearts for you. God, just uh, bless the Lord's Supper, um, that we understand the full breadth of taking it, God, and what this means uh, as Christians, Lord, and followers of you. Bless this congregation, and may we go out into the world and be a light for you. In Jesus' name, pray. Amen. As we think back on verse 5, we recognize that God dwells here. This is symbolic. We do not believe, as Baptists, that there is any saving value in these elements, but we believe they're extremely important. One of the reasons it's so important is because God is here. He's right here in our midst as we remember what he has done for us. I think back to John chapter 5, which is one of the readings in the, in the Bible this week. and It talks about how Jesus went back to Cana for the second time. The first miracle was when he turned the water into wine. And John, John chapter 5 later tells us that he turned death into life. That was his second miracle. That's what this experience is about. We've been taken from death to life because of what Christ has done. That's why I said, this is my bread, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Hear the words of our Lord. This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. We're going to stand and worship in just a moment, and I want to give you two quick directives. First of all, we're delighted for any of you that have come that are not yet a part of Westgate, or if you're wondering about membership at Westgate, Jeff, in just a couple of moments, over in the gymnasium is going to lead a class called Welcome to Westgate, and if you want to learn more about Westgate, we'll feed you, tell you more about the church, in less than an hour, you'll be on your way home. It's a great opportunity for anybody here to learn more about the church. And then secondly, at 2 o'clock, we'll have a funeral of one of our church members, Carolyn Ames. And so as we leave here today, would you make sure that all of these cups, every piece of trash, everything that would not look good at a funeral, please take that with you. So let's stand together, worship, and celebrate what we have in Christ. Offer up. 